2. Um, that's where we will be this uh, morning in Luke 2, um, going through our Advent series, a three-sermon series of which this is the middle, looking at the birth of our Savior Jesus into the world. Um, as I said, we'll have a Thanksgiving service on December 27th, and then next year jump into book one of the Psalms. And hope that will be an encouragement to you to go through book one um, of the Psalms. It is a, um, a guide for worship. The Psalms cover the range of human emotions, um, and each and every one of them points to Jesus. Um, some of them more explicitly than others, but all of them point to um, the Christ, the fulfillment of God's word. And so that's where we'll be next year, um, actually 42 psalms in the first book of the psalms. Um, the psalms are broken up into five books, like the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses. Um, and we'll talk more about that when we get into the, the series. And so we'll go 1 through 42 um, next year. And so I hope that you'll stick around if you're visiting with us. Uh, but for this morning, we're looking at the birth of our Savior Jesus in Luke 2. And what I hope for you to see is the uniqueness of God's entry into the world through his birth to Joseph and Mary. It is a a story that has never been repeated before, and and purposely, um, one of the things that science often says when it tries to disregard Christianity is it tries to take the stipulations of the scientific method and apply them to the miracles that accompany Jesus's um, birth and death and resurrection. And so if you're a scientist, back when I was doing um, my biochemistry degree, you would start with a hypothesis. And if your hypothesis was repeatable enough, then you could move into the realm of theory. And if that theory was repeatable enough, you could move into the realm of law. And so scientists will look at Christianity and often say, well, Babies aren't born to virgins. That's a, that's a non-repeatable event, so obviously it didn't happen. People don't rise from the dead. That just doesn't happen. We don't have any scientific instruments that have recorded that happening in human history. So obviously those things couldn't have happened because they're not repeatable. But what they miss is that's the point. God's not trying to prove gravity He's trying to prove his once-for-all love for his people through the once-for-all event of his son, once-for-all coming into the world, living and dying, once-for-all for us and for our sins, and rising once-for-all to give us the eternal life that he's promised and the Holy Spirit that is the down payment of that inheritance. And so what I hope to do for you this morning is to show the uniqueness of Jesus' entry into the world. And I hope to do that by looking at the brevity of the passage we have. In the Gospels that I mentioned before, only two of them mention the birth of Jesus, Matthew and Luke. Mark and John um, don't mention it. And so half of the Gospels don't even have the birth of Jesus. And when we have the birth of Jesus, you'll see this morning, it is in two verses here in this passage. And there is something that cries out from the depths of our soul that just wants more. And even will even make up more. And so, so much about our little manger scenes never really even happened that way. So, for example, the Bible doesn't say that there were three wise men. They gave three gifts, and they assume there are three gifts. Well, there is one guy for each gift, but it doesn't say that. And we have, you know, hymns and carols that talk about it snowing on Christmas Eve. Isn't that nice and European of us to think of it snowing in the Middle East around Jesus? Or that the little child, no crying he made. No, he was truly a human. He probably did really cry. We, we want desperately to embellish the story and add to it because we want it to be more than it is here. At least we, we want to fit it into our grid of Hallmark holidays and 
cutesy births. And that's not what God gives us here in this passage. It's really shocking the brevity of what it is and what actually happens. And what I hope you see this morning is that the shock of God is his nearness and his intimacy and his love and his mercy. And I wonder this morning, if I were to give you a fill-in-the-blank quiz and say, God did something shocking yesterday. I wonder what you would fill in the blank as your guess. Moved a mountain, did a mighty miracle, brought judgment upon the wicked. I don't think if God did something shocking, you would have chosen, came into the world through the womb of a virgin. So we're going to ask ourselves some questions this morning about why that is and what that means for our faith and our relationship with the Lord Jesus. So with that introduction, I'll read to us from Luke 2, the first seven verses. This is the word of our God. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinus was governor of Syria, and all went up to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee and the towns of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. This is the word of our God. Why don't we pray this morning before we consider it. Father, we thank you for your word, the fullness of it, the richness of it, that all of it is planned. None of it is off the cuff. All of it is perfect and true. It has no errors. It was for the original readers, the people to whom Luke wrote this gospel, but it is also for all people in all ages and all times, including us here this morning. And so we pray this morning that you would give us your Holy Spirit, Lord, We don't come into a history lesson. We come into a sermon. We come into your presence to learn from you. We pray and ask this in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. What I'd like to do before I get into verse 7 and half of verse 6 and the birth of Jesus and what it means for us is to think about the ways that God revealed himself in the Old Testament, if we were to to pluck three of those out and look at them and make some conclusions, what if we go first to God's calling on Moses, that he is out in the wilderness and he is sheep there with him, and as he's walking through the wilderness, he sees something strange. There's a bush, often like to think of it almost like a holly bush, you know, green and bright all year round. But there was something unique about that bush, not just that it was growing in the desert, which can be unique depending on where you are in the Middle East for there to be a bush, but the bush was on fire. More than that, the bush was not being consumed. And so you expect, maybe you will, as sometimes we do in our family, you take your Christmas tree out after Christmas and um, you set fire to it outside and, and watch how fast it goes up. I, I remember the first time I did that in Mississippi, and as I lit it up in Mississippi on the dry grass, the wind came by and set the flame down on the grass, and there was hoses and water and stamping and all kinds of stuff. But when it it went up, it it was so evident, even much to my surprise, that there wasn't going to be much Christmas tree left 
after just a few seconds, the fire was so great. And yet Moses here in the desert sees this bush on fire and it's not being consumed. I think that would probably grab your attention. And so Moses steps aside. God speaks to him from heaven. Again, a, a voice from heaven would be unsettling. You might think first, you know, it might be crazy. Am I hearing voices in my head? No, that's not it. This is a, a voice from heaven. God himself is addressing me. Unique, startling, unsettling. And then what God says to him is, take off your shoes. Because this is, this is holy ground. Now, again, to to meet with someone, I know some of you kind of have germ or dirt issues and, and maybe you take off your shoes when you go into your house and that's just your own family's tradition and, and what you do. But for God to say, I am so holy that you need to remove your shoes because they may have been places or have things on them that can't be in my presence. Again, that is a startling, unnerving situation. That is an outrageous request that bespeaks something about God's exalted majesty, about what it takes to be in his presence, things you have to do, the miracles he can perform. This is a God not to be trifled with, as Moses would see. What if we flash forward to Moses after leading the people of God out of exile, and he's there on the mountain, and God is telling him that he's going to lead these exiles and him into the promised land, and Moses has learned enough between the burning bush and there to be able to say, listen, God, um, we need you, and I need to be near you, so if you're not going to go with me, I don't want to go at all, so please be with me, and God promises he's going to be with him, and then God makes an outrageous request. I mean, Moses makes an outrageous request of God. God, show me your glory. And God says, well, no man can see my glory and live. No no one can see who I am and not be fizzled to dust. And I, I, I think it's not just because we're sinners, which is part of it, because we are creation and he is so holy that even the creation that he created, good and right, can't hold up under the full, amazing, bright, and powerful glory of God. But God says, listen, Moses, I will let you see the back of me. And to see the back of me, it's going to be from the cleft of a rock, and I'm going to cover over you. And so Moses saw the back of God. Now, again, it was an amazing request, an amazing moment of condescension of the Lord to grant part of it. But what does that say about our God? about how unapproachable he is and how holy and good and righteous he is. And as much as you say, I I want a God like that, it's still unnerving that he would be that just and that good. We almost, if I flash forward a little bit, it's almost like Peter, when he got a glimpse of who Jesus was first in the boat, he fell down and said, I am a sinful man, get away from me. It wasn't, hey, Jesus, that was really cool, the thing you did with the fish. Like he was shocked with who he was and the distance between him and God and how great God was. What if we flash forward a little bit more and pick up with um, our fifth gospel writer, Isaiah, as we talked about earlier. In the year King Uzziah died, King Uzziah was a great king. It would have been a time of national mourning. Isaiah would have been very upset. And Isaiah walked into the temple, and in the temple there, God decided to reveal himself to Isaiah in a theophany to give a vision uh, an illustration visible of who God was and what he was about. And as Isaiah tried and attempted to describe it, he said his train filled the temple. 
Now, you think of a bride. I've seen brides with long trains. I do weddings as part of what I do. And typically, the longer the train, the more strength the bride needs. Brides kind of forget how heavy all that material is on them. Um, and also, what a retinue they need of um, brides' maids to tend to this train trailing behind and make sure it's set just right and everywhere. And the Lord God's train, an image of his glory, is so beautiful and exalted that it fills the whole temple. I mean, imagine the Lord sitting up here in this gym, is smaller than the temple, and that you walk in through that door and his train off of his robe fills the entirety of this room. And then he speaks. And his speech shakes the threshold. Now, I, I don't do construction, as I told you. When I put my hands on things, they typically break. I, I hire th- people who fix things in my house because I can't fix them. I make the projects worse. But from what I understand of building, um, windows and door frames are pretty important sections of a building that need to be built just right and reinforced and strengthened. And from what I understand of the construction methodologies, commercial construction in the ancient Near East. They had things like marble to deal with and heavy set stones. And the temple wasn't the place that you did shoddy work, you know, just threw up an aluminum frame and called it a day. The temple had a lot of construction to it. And so for God to speak, he didn't touch it. He didn't get near it. For God to speak and the threshold to shake that is might in words that we really don't have words for. Isaiah tried to describe it. We don't have words or categories for that. And so Isaiah says, I fell down on my face like a man who was undone. That English word for undone relates to the Hebrew word for kind of disjointed. If you think of like a cheap toy from... Um, from China, maybe, and over the course of playing after a week, the thing just falls apart. It just wasn't made well. The glue wears out, and the things fall out. That's, that's what happened to Isaiah when he saw the Lord God. He says, my, my, I'm just falling apart. I'm just a puddle on the floor when I see the robe and hear the voice and who you are, and you can read on and see how that goes. But again, God showed himself and who he was and reduced Isaiah to quavering worship on the floor worship. And Isaiah didn't have any question that God was exalted and he was a sinner and God was mighty and God was just and God was glorious, far beyond what he could think or imagine and that Isaiah was not. And we could go through others, Abraham, Gideon. We could look through all the theophanies in the Old Testament. But this is where we get to when we get to this message and looking at what happened at Christmas time especially when we think of our own sin, when we can think of our own failings, the things we've done that we're not proud of, things maybe we've done this week, maybe this morning. If God's finally going to come, if he's going to do his great thing that he's promised, whatever that is, we didn't know in the Old Testament what it would be, but he said he would come. If God's going to come based on the theophanies of the Old Testament and our sin, how should we expect God to come into the world. Legions of angels decked out like Navy SEALs with armament, chariots of fire rending the sky, 
speaking so that creation can understand who he is and being resolved before him as worshipers on their knees saying, not worthy. If we had to guess how the culminating entry of God would be into the world to finally do business with sin, death, and Satan, what would we guess it would be based on the Old Testament, on Moses and Isaiah and all the other theophanies? It wouldn't be this. Because up until Jesus' entry in the world, we didn't know that God could love us that much. We didn't know that he was willing to be that near us. We didn't know how soft he could be and how much mercy was stored up in him. We had no idea how low he was willing to go, how much he was willing to humiliate himself in order to save us. You see, I talk a lot about Adam and Eve and what they knew about God before the fall, before sin entered the world. One of the things they didn't know was what God would have done if they had fallen into sin. If you had interviewed them and walked up at Adam and Eve and say, tell me about God. They could, without sin, describe God in amazing fullness. Maybe things that have been forgotten over time. Instances not recorded by Moses in the Bible of things and events that had happened between them and God. The amazingness of him. But if you had asked Adam, what would he be willing to do? How far would this God go if you denied him and spit in his face? What would he be willing to accomplish? Would he leave you or would he come for you? What would he do? Adam and Eve would be left scratching their heads. So we can ask questions, unanswerable questions, as to why sin came into the world. Why there is death and why there is cancer and why there is car accidents and why there is conflict and why it's so messed up. We can say that it's going to be resolved one day, but in the meantime, we can at least say one of the reasons that God allowed sin and fallenness is because he wanted us to see Luke 2, verses 6 and 7. He wanted us to see what he would do to rescue us if we were lost. And so Joseph and Mary, a census had been called. Joseph was of the lineage of David. And so he went to the city of David, of Bethlehem, and went up to Bethlehem. He had um, a wife, as we had talked about last week, who was pregnant, even though um, they had not yet consummated their marriage. They were um, engaged with, back in those days, engagement and marriage were um, a much more serious thing during the engagement period. They're kind of considered married when they were engaged, um, even though they had not consummated the relationship then. And so Mary still a virgin, yet pregnant nine months, going up to this census situation that was called um, by the Roman government. And there... Mary gives birth. There was no room for them at the inn, and so they end up in a manger again. I don't know what your manger seems like. We really don't know what it looked like. It, it could have been a small building. It could have been a cave nearby that they would store animals in. Uh, we know that he was, he was laid in a manger, which is a, a, a little cradle that you would feed animals out of. I, I kind of hope that animals weren't there. I kind of hope Joseph, like as husband, realized his wife was in labor and kind of shooed the cows out. And so I'm kind of hoping that, you know, cows weren't next to this newborn um, baby. I'm, I'm hoping, I'll ask him when um, I get to that, how, how all that went down. But we do know is that the God-man Jesus Christ came into the world. That he was born, really born, like messy born, like 
infants certainly are cute, but it's, it's, it's a messy process filled with you know, all kinds of stuff. And I won't go into detail. And you know, wrapped and washed and swaddled and God himself held there in Mary's arms. So that it, it, it blows my mind, but to hear Paul say in Colossians 1.17 that in Christ all things are held together so that in that moment that he's held, newborn in Mary's arms, so utterly dependent on her, at the same time holding the entirety of the universe together, that infant ensuring every quark and neutron and proton and electron spins in its right orbit and the furthest reaches of all creation. It was an amazing moment. So the God who needed nothing, owned a cattle on every hill, was absolutely dependent on Mary, his mother. People would come and in his poverty have to give gifts so that they could hack out a living Gifts from the Magi, wanting the, coo- the cooing and the sweetness. You see, infants just draw you in, don't they? I mean, unless you're like newly married guy in your 20s, which is wrong anyway, but like, you know, those guys are like, oh, infants don't know what to do. You know, kind of back up. Everybody else thinks infants are awesome. They want to they smell their heads and just smell newborn baby smell. And, and they want to take their their fingers and put them inside of the baby fingers and let them grasp around to see, see how small, they want to see their little, their little feet. And they want to hear them coo. I, I love hearing babies in the midst of, midst of our service as folks in our congregation have babies. Babies are so inviting. Everyone wants to be near them. So I wonder if we're going to draw the same conclusions like we did with Moses at the burning bush or Moses there on the mountain in the glory of God, or Isaiah being reduced to a groveling mess in front of God's train and threshold trembling voice. What conclusions are we going to make about this? Is not God a God of mercy that he chose to come this way? As a child, an infant, to come and to marry. Again, Mary was much a sinner as you and me. She had her sin, she had her stuff, she had the things that she'd done wrong, she needed God's grace, and God decided to favor her by Jesus. What, what mercy to Mary that God would do that, that God would enter into a relationship with a human like that. He would love her like that. What, what patience. Imagine what it would have been like for Jesus living his earthly life to be around sin, it wasn't like he was this like sin police always going off. He wasn't always correcting people everywhere he went. Sometimes he did, but imagine what it would have been for the perfect son of God to just be patient with people around them. What patience there is and what, what love that he would come. And he would come in a way that's accessible, that draws people in, that is imminent and intimate. Is this what you think of your God? You see, we step into the tension here. Because if I told you this afternoon that God was going to show up to you, what God would you think would show up? How would that occasion go, Christian, for you? You expecting Isaiah? You expecting a manger? Because the beauty of the Christian gospel is that Jesus makes sense of both.
You see, some people want to take sense of the Old Testament and say, angry God, like really, really upset, like hacked off, like he just, he just, he just really, really mad. He gets the New Testament, kind of nice God. He's kind of calmed down some, maybe went off to his room, punched a few pillows. Now he's fine, like nice God. But that doesn't talk about Jesus at all. See, Jesus in his humanity and deity is the combination of both of those. Absolute righteousness. Glory unabated. Total 100% godness, the kind of majesty that at moments was revealed here on earth and reduced people to the ground. Two times, if you think about the transfiguration when Jesus is on the mountain and he shines bright white and God speaks to him and his, his disciples are amazed. Or in the garden when the soldiers come to arrest him and they say, where's Jesus? And he says, almost echoing the I am of the Old Testament, I am he. And for a moment it says, as he says that, the soldiers all fall to the ground. Almost as if there's this brief little crack in the glory of Jesus' exterior and the glory shines through. Reduce, that is Jesus. And at times, you stripping the temple bare and casting over temp- tables and getting so angry at death that the grave of Lazarus begins to weep, not sad tears, but just angry tears at death. That Jesus will come again in judgment and will judge sin and the wicked truly for what they are and yet so soft, so inviting, so loving. The guy that you'd invited to parties, the guy you wanted to be around, the guy his disciples loved, sinners and prostitutes would come to him and want to hear him teach and know that in mercy and love he would call them to repentance and forgiveness. In Jesus, we have the combination of these things. But what we see in Christmas, what we see in the cradle, is that God has drawn near. And that God is a God of invitation to sinners. And that God is accessible. And if I return back to my question, for most of you, if God were to show up, your immediate, um, immediate response would be to step back. What the cradle tells us is that God has drawn near to invite you in, to know you, and to have a relationship with you. That's our God and what he showed himself to be in the birth of Jesus to a virgin, to live a life as a young boy, to grow up and to live um, as a carpenter in his dad's shop, to go on to be an itinerant rabbi, to die for the sins of his people. So where does that leave us? First, it leaves us always in repentance repenting for our disbelief in who God is. And so what we have a habit of doing is either domesticating God or distancing ourselves from him. And I wonder if that's what you do. Do you turn God into a hallmark picture? Do you reduce him down to something's nice, something that you can deal with, something that doesn't have hard edges or hard truths? A God that's not of judgment. He's just kind of nice. He was born. I can think of him as a little baby. Don't want to think of him as exalted judge. I'm, I'm fine with the cradle, not so good with revelation. Domesticating God. Do you distance yourself from him? Maybe you just like to keep him at a, a, a distance. And part of your participation in things like Christmas is not so that you actually draw near, but you can actually keep him at bay. Because you tell yourself, we do Christmas and Easter. Of course I'm near God. Of course I'm a Christian. And you can find yourself as Christian or non-Christian doing that. And so if you're a Christian and you domesticate or distance yourself from God, repent. 
God has saved you for an immediate, close relationship with himself. If if you're not a Christian and you realize that you've been using those tactics to avoid dealing with God, deal with him now. Repent of your sins. Step out of eternal death into eternal life through faith in Christ because he is coming back as judge. And I promise you, at the second coming, he's not coming through the womb of a virgin. He is coming in might. He is coming with the rending of of the clouds. He is coming with the trumpet sound. And he is coming in judgment, righteous and true and awesome. And so if you're not a Christian, do business with God. Stop domesticating him or distancing yourself from him. Step into relationship. Step into the manger, into his nearness. When we believe this morning that that is our God, that he is that loving, that he draws near to us when we're grieving, when we're sad, when we're apathetic, when we're just exhausted. See, right now we're in the middle of December, so we're all exhausted, we're just not admitting it yet. We admit it in January. January is okay time to admit December was really hard. Right now we feel the the need to put up the exterior, and I know most of you are just trying to keep your heads above water. What does it mean for you, instead of just engaging with a Christmas story, engaging with a Christmas child, for God to say, I love you, I want to be near you forget all the trappings and come into the manger and to be near me. This is my character of being near you and with you. What does it look like for us to share that gospel with others? How many people at Christmas time who don't know the Lord Jesus would say, God is willing to be near me. God is willing to draw near and invite me into relationship and forgive me of my sins and he's willing to know me. How many people would think that? Or how many people think God is distant and I need to work up enough stuff to get near him? It's an amazing gospel. We keep it trapped up inside. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this gospel, for the truth contained herein of your son's entry into the world, for revealing part of your character and who you are and your love and your mercy, your softness, your willingness to enter into the womb of a virgin, to be born into poverty, to live 2,000 years ago in a third world country, to be spit at and derided to endure all the miseries of this life and to die, Father, with your wrath upon him for our sins. What an amazing gift. What an amazing Christ. Change us through him as we see him and allow us to continue to worship even as we pray in his name. Amen. I invite you to stand and respond in song this morning.